today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. You know, it's easy to happen. We can get stagnant in our walk with God. We can become complacent in our walk with God. Life presses in. We get busy. We get tired. We get preoccupied with a lot of other things. And so we end up kind of putting God on a shelf, and we only bring Him down when we need Him. And the thing that usually jolts us out of complacency is a crisis. That's when we get real serious with God. Ever notice that in your life? Some people think that if God doesn't care about what's going on in their life, why should they care? So instead of trusting God, they have an apathetic and disengaged attitude toward Him. What is God going to do to jolt you out of your complacency? In today's message, Pastor Gary will give you a recipe for a life that is following after the heart of God. He says to seek God, get rid of the idols in your life, and open up the Bible. As you study and read the Bible, your relationship with God will grow stronger. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Zephaniah as he continues his message, When God Sings. If we don't turn to Him and worship Him for who He is, if we don't connect and commune with God, the Creator of the universe, then what we will end up doing is deferring that to something or something else, and we will worship that something or that someone else to satisfy the innate need we have to worship. This is what God has placed within the heart of human beings. But because, again, if we don't worship the true and living God, we will turn to something else or someone else because of this innate need we have to worship. That's why, quite honestly, you know, we see an aspect of this kind of thing happening in in our world today where, where we have somewhat made a God out of the earth. It's pantheism. It's been around forever. All this preoccupation with the environment has given the earth a godlike status where nature and trees are worshipped and Greta Thunberg is the goddess of the earth. Have you seen this girl? Greta Thunberg, Google her if you haven't heard of her. They put her on the cover of Time magazine as person of the year. Why? She's a 16-year-old kid who's talking about the environment, and, and you know, she, she's from Sweden, and she's kind of lecturing environmentalists, saying, you're not really true environmentalists, you know, and, and, you know, you're killing the earth and the planet and all this kind of stuff. So that's what's happening. We, we, we've got this kind of godlike status that we've attached to the earth and to the environment. Now, let, let me just hasten to add, listen, if you personally want to do things that help the environment, 
okay, you know, it, it's God's green earth. I get that. I get that. What I'm talking about is the bigger picture of this move. There's an environmental movement. And the movement is trying to ascribe God-like status to the earth. Let, let me illustrate it like this. Just this week, a lawsuit was fi- filed in federal court against the Trump administration by three environmental organizations on the basis of, because in their opinion, quote, the Trump administration has failed to protect the green sea turtle habitat in South Florida. So they're suing the federal government right now, just happened last week, suing the federal government for not protecting the green sea turtle habitat in South Florida. All the while, listen to me on this, all the while some of those same people will sit on their hands during Trump's State of the Union address and not applaud when he talks about outlawing late-term abortion and preserving life in the womb. Why is that? It is a terrible day when the green sea turtle has more favored status than a baby in the womb. Are you hearing me on this? And so my point is, when environment and created things are cherished above the creator and what God determines is valuable in terms of like life, when you see this imbalance, it's this idolizing, idolizing, making an idol out of something that should not be idolized. Idolatry is all around us. Idolatry is all around us. And even some world religions still bow down to carved images. I had a couple, uh, couple of weeks ago come up to me between services in the atrium uh, from India. Uh, both believers, b- both love Jesus. But she was telling me about how her family um, still is in Hinduism and how her family still bows down and worships idols, just objects. Now, Hindus would, strictly speaking, they would say that they do not worship the idols themselves, but what they believe to be the presence of God through the idols. That doesn't make it any better. I'm just, I'm just trying to distinguish what they would say. And in fact, if you go to hinduismtoday.com, they would say, this says this right on their website, quote, Hindus do not worship a stone or metal idol as God. We worship God through the image. We invoke the presence of God from the higher unseen worlds into the image so that we can commune with him and receive his blessings. Okay, well, that that doesn't clear it up for me. In fact, that makes it even worse because the idea of invoking a spiritual presence from the unseen worlds into an image is not just idolatry, that's demonic idolatry. And so we need to pray for Hindus. We need to love Hindus, but but that's, that's misguided. That is idolatry, uh, any way you, you slice it. Now, of course, in our educated Western world, uh, we would never bow down to some inanimate object that's beneath us. Our form of idolatry is much more sophisticated than that. We buy expensive toys, and then we completely ignore God while we devote ourselves to the God of materialism. Or we seek addictive pleasure with the God of sex or alcohol or drugs. Or our time is consumed by the God of technology, right? Look on the back of your phones. It's an apple with a bite taken out of it. Any coincidence? I don't think so. (laughs) We even tend to make people gods. We idolize people. Idolatry is in the heart of every one of us. 
at some level, competing with God for our time, attention, love, and devotion. It might be a a more sophisticated form of idolatry, but please hear me on this. It is no less offensive to God than the idolatry of other world religions. Paul said in Colossians 3, 5 that covetousness is idolatry. Did you know that when you lust after covet, when you want what someone else has, that that's called idolatry in the Bible? Why? Because covetousness drains our contentment in Christ. Whenever we are looking at what we don't have, wishing to have what someone else has, it robs us of our contentment in Christ. It's idolatry. It's covetousness. Paul simply put it this way in 1 Corinthians 10, 14. He said, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So this is a New Testament thing, not just Old Testament. In fact, John the Apostle would write in 1 John 5, 21, keep yourselves from idols. So we have to be very careful. What are the things that compete in our hearts for affection and devotion that should be unto the Lord that have captured our own hearts instead? Now, I've talked about idolatry often through our study through the Bible because it's all through the Bible, so how can you avoid the topic? But I had somebody come up to me one time when I was talking on the subject of idolatry between services. It it was tongue-in-cheek, I know, but the person came up to me and they said, "Uh, you know, all this talk about idolatry... Uh, And you point out different things that are idols, but I have yet to hear you talk about the idolatry of Krispy Kreme. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Because if you're new to Cornerstone, I love Krispy Kreme. And so this person was like, yeah, I noticed you never have Krispy Kreme on the list. I said, here's the reason why. You need to understand. It's not an idol because I don't know anybody who destroys an idol. And if you bring me a box of those little idols, I will destroy every single one of them within minutes. It's not an idol, because I destroy them. Number two is complacency. Idolatry, complacency. Look in your Bibles, chapter 1, verse 12. And it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps. Look at how God is going to much effort to to seek out and punish the men who are settled in complacency, who say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. So complacency is mentioned there in verse 12. Circle that word in your Bibles. Zephaniah calls out this lazy, apathetic attitude toward God among God's people. They are detached. They are unconcerned. They are disengaged. And because of that, They justify it because they think that's the way God is. That's why they say there at the end of verse 12, well, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. You know, God's not concerned about anything either. Why should we be? In the NIV, it says the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. So that's how they would justify it in their own lives. Well, God's not going to do anything about anything, so why should we? Why should we care about spiritual things? Why should we care about communing with God, worshiping him, honoring him, living for him? And so they were complacent. They had checked out spiritually. They didn't care about their walk with God. They were lazy, opulent, idle, and indifferent. The New American Standard Version, instead of saying complacent, it says they were stagnant in spirit. I like that. They were stagnant in spirit. You know, it's easy to happen. We can get stagnant in our walk with God. We can become complacent in our walk with God. Life presses in. We get busy. We get tired. We get preoccupied with a lot of other things. And so we end up kind of putting God on a shelf, and we only bring him down when we need him. 
And the thing that usually jolts us out of complacency is a crisis. That's when we get real serious with God. Ever notice that in your life? You can be just kind of coasting, very complacent, very just kind of unconcerned about God. And then all of a sudden you you hit a bump in the road and now you're really crying out for the Lord. And, And that's exactly what God uses here to jolt his own people out of their complacency. He's going to, he's going to bring distress. He's going to bring distress in the form of the Babylonian army. And they're going to come and they're going to besiege Jerusalem. And Zephaniah is sent 25 years in advance to warn the people, God's judgment is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. And so he gives warning because God is going to bring distress upon them. Look here in your Bibles, chapter 1, verse 14 to 18. Verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. I will bring distress upon men, and they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like refuse, neither their silver nor their gold. Your money won't be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath, but the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he will make speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. God says, your idolatry and your complacency are going to destroy you. So I will bring distress upon the land to jolt you out of your idolatry and out of your complacency. Now, it's interesting. We're not going to read it, but you can write in the margin of your Bible right next to those verses I just read there. You can write Revelation 6, verses 12 to 17. Revelation 6, verse 12 to 17. Those verses are very similar in language to what we just read here. In Zephaniah 1, 14 to 18, it's very similar to Revelation 6, 12 to 17, which tells us this. And this is a true statement for most of the prophets in the Old Testament. Whenever they would prophesy, not always, but often, they would have a dual meaning. What the prophet said applied in the near term and in the distant future. It often had two applications, the near and the far. So in Zephaniah's day, he's talking here about the judgment that's coming in the form of the Babylonians. You people need to get right with God or you're going to see the distress coming in the form of the Babylonian army. But in Revelation 6, it's speaking of the tribulation period that is going to come upon the earth. Language is very similar. So Zephaniah was prophesying both near and far because God tells us in Revelation 6 that upon a God-forsaking, Christ-rejecting world, he's going to bring similar distress called the tribulation. It's going to happen. It's coming. So what is happening here in Zephaniah is a microcosm of the tribulation that's going to happen upon the earth in a day that is to come. So you can go home and read Revelation 6 because it is a warning to us that we likewise need to get right with God before his judgment comes. Now, all of this book here has a lot of wrath in it and judgment and destruction because of idolatry and complacency. And if that's where the book ended, it would be pretty depressing. But that's not where the book ends. And in relation to us, this much should give us hope as well. I'm going to share two last passages with you very quickly. If you'll go to chapter 2, I'm going to read again the verses I read at the top of our study, because Zephaniah closes this book by telling us two important things. 
our redemption and God's rejoicing. Our redemption and God's rejoicing. In chapter 2, verse 1, gather yourselves together. Yes, gather together, O undesirable nation. Before, circle that word. It's going to be repeated two more times. Before the decree is issued or the day passes like chaff. Before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you. Before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth who have upheld his justice. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Notice three times in three verses, actually three times in just one verse, verse two, the word before is mentioned here because God sends Zephaniah 25 years before the Babylonians come to warn them. You know, sometimes we can read our Bibles and we think God seems to be a little harsh in the Old Testament, doesn't he? I mean, you know, there's a lot of wrath, there's a lot of judgment, there's a lot of bloodshed here. But what you need to always understand is that God gives fair warning every single time. Every single time, 25 years before the Babylonians come, he sends Zephaniah to warn them, before this happens, before this happens, before this happens, get right with God. And then if you get right with God, it may be, this is the end of verse 3, it may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. It's a play on words. Do you remember at the top of our study, I showed you what Zephaniah's name means in Hebrew? Zephaniah means the Lord hides. The Lord hides. It's a play on his own name. He says, if you get right with God before the day of his judgment, you will be hidden in him. You will be hidden. You will be sheltered from the coming wrath. You will be able to avoid the judgment of God if you get right with him before his judgment comes. He will hide you. He will protect you. He will shelter you from his judgment. Isn't this what we see in the Bible at different times? For example, the story of Lot. Lot and his family were rescued from Sodom and Gomorrah before the judgment of God came upon those twin cities. Noah and his family were rescued before the flood came upon the earth. The same is true in the day of the tribulation that is coming. The Bible teaches that we will be rescued before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And the fact of the matter is that it is true for every single one of us who have trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We are hidden in Christ and kept from the wrath of God. Why? Because Jesus took on the wrath of God intended for us. Though he had committed no sin, he dies on a cross and he takes the punishment intended for us because of our sin. Therefore, Paul writes in Colossians 3, verse 3, you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Amen. That's what God does for us. He wants none to perish. No, not one. He wants to hide us in Christ, in his son. He wants to shelter us from his judgment. He gave the people fair warning in the day of Zephaniah. He gives us fair warning. We don't have to suffer the judgment of God. If we turn before we die, if we turn before he comes again, if we get right now with God, we are hidden with him in Christ. Colossians 3 verse 3. This is God's mercy towards us. But as if that's not enough, Zephaniah adds one more thing I want to show you in chapter 3. Go to chapter 3. 
about how God actually rejoices over us. This is a very unique verse in all of the Bible. I want to point it out to you, starting in verse 14 of chapter 3, and then we'll close. Chapter 3, verse 14. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. See, now he's looking ahead to the time when God's people get right with God. Verse 15. The Lord has taken away your judgments. Why? Because now you're hidden with him. He has cast out your enemy, the king of Israel. The Lord is in your midst. You shall see, you, you shall see disaster no more. In that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, do not fear Zion. Let not your hands be weak. Look at verse 17. This is a great verse. The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. With singing. I don't know if you've ever thought about, if you ever contemplated the idea about God singing or what makes God sing, but the answer is you do. You actually make God sing. When you come to him humble and broken and contrite and you surrender your life to Jesus, he rejoices over you with gladness. He quiets you with his love. He rejoices over you with singing. Imagine this. The creator of the universe has a song about you. Now, some of you might say, well, that's probably just figurative, isn't it, Pastor G? I don't think it's figurative. What Zephaniah is saying to us is that redeemed people bring so much joy to God that he expresses his emotion concerning his love for us with a song. Now, he's not singing because of what we've done. He is singing because of what his son Christ has done in giving his life for us that it might mend the broken relationship that we have with God so that by the death and sacrifice of Christ, we might have once again mutual relationship with the creator of the universe, and this is why God sings. Now, some of you, your perception of God is scary. And don't misunderstand, he is a holy and righteous God. I get that. He is just and perfect in all his ways. But some of you need to have an understanding that God is also a God of mercy, grace, love, and compassion who actually sings over his redeemed people. That's how much God is in love with you. And whenever the enemy tries to play games in your head by trying to make you think that God could never love you, God could never forgive you, all the stuff that you've done, all this and all that, you're just a miserable, broken person, you're just trash. And the next time that the enemy reminds you, oh, and tries to make you think you're just trash, you, you remember that God is always in the recycling business. And that he takes lives, and he redeems lives, and he restores lives, and he rejoices over lives of his children who have been redeemed by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Amen.
You've been listening to Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Pastor Gary has been teaching through the last several books of the Old Testament, also known as the Minor Prophets. These short books are powerful and reveal so much about your Creator and His love for the world. If you have any questions or would like to share a prayer request with us, please contact us. You can reach us by calling 703-771-1500. Again, that number is 703-771-1500. You can also listen to more teachings in this series by visiting our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc, or just download our mobile app. That way you'll have biblical messages available to listen to whenever you want, wherever you are. Pastor Gary also has a companion resource available for this Minor Prophets series. You'll find it under the Teachings tab at cornerstoneconnection.cc. We'd love to meet you too. You're invited to join us this weekend at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg. We're meeting in person as well as online, and you can find out more on our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for tuning in to Study the Minor Prophets. And we hope you'll join us again right here on Cornerstone Connection.